If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Psalm chapter 63, and I would tell you there's a Bible app event for this. So if you have the Version Bible app, you can open that up and click on the menu and go to the events near you, and you can follow along there. We're talking about resilience, and uh, namely, uh, we're talking about how God has given us a number of tools that he's placed at our disposal that help us be more resilient. We've talked about things like spiritual companionship, and we've talked about spiritual mentors. A couple weeks ago, we talked about God gave you the ability to choose. You can take responsibility for your life, and that's really a gift from God to help you be more resilient. We talked about last week that God gives you the ability to process pain. And if you'll do that, that will help you be more healthy in general, will help you bounce back a lot of times. He, he gives us many tools. And the tool, uh, as we think about all these tools we're going to be covering, the one that we're going to be speaking of today might not feel like a tool, but it is. It is an ability to pursue him an ability to pursue God. It's a real gift that God has laid on our feet. And he's more than laid it at our our feet and given us this ability. He's actually given us a hunger to pursue him. It was St. Augustine, who was uh, early Catholic. He was a great writer, great thinker. And one of his more popular quotes goes like this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or in the less enduring words of Annie Lennox and David Stewart, you might say it like this, everybody's looking for something. And we are. All of us have within our lives this kind of feeling that there's got to be something more. There's something more to pursue. And as seekers, we really need to be pursuing the right thing. We need to be seeking God. Now, occasionally, when you tell someone, we need to be seekers, we need to seek God, there's some maybe roaring fundamentalists that will say, we don't seek God, he seeks us. And I remember when the seeker-sensitive movement was kind of a big thing in churches, people said, we don't seek God, we don't have it within ourselves to seek him. I think really they just didn't like the music, but that's what they said anyway. And, and, And as they were saying that, I get that, because Jesus says, the Son of Man did not came actually to seek and to save what was lost. So God does seek us. But there are countless scriptures that tell us we have a responsibility to seek God. And more than just telling us that as a command, there's even promise in it. For example, in Jeremiah, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so today I want to suggest to you that you have a God-given ability, an ability to seek him. And when you use that ability, you will be more resilient. Now we're going to read these 11 verses in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to give you some insight into how we understand this psalm. The traditional notation indicates this psalm was written by David. He was a king of Israel at the time he wrote this, but evidently he was on the run. He was in what they would call the wilderness. It's a desert, in a dry desert. He's on the run because his son, one of his sons, one whom he loved deeply, named Absalom, had gone rogue. And that made David have to flee his palace. He had to flee the city. And he had to flee into the desert. And so when he is there, that is when he's writing these 11 verses we're going to read in a moment. And think about it. He is away from his holy city, Jerusalem. He is away from the people of God, his people that he cares for and rules as a shepherd would would care for sheep. He's distant from God's house, the place that he loves to go and worship God. He, he can't just walk into the, the temple, into the tabernacle and worship God. And he feels like, like he's kind of out on his own. And yet, he says, God, I know you're here and I will continue to pursue you. Listen to these 11 verses. Follow along as I read them. 
You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I'll remember you. I'll I'll think of you through watches of the night. Because you're my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They'll go down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the sword and become like food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Now, several weeks ago when we started this series, I told you that I kind of got the ideas for these sermon series from a book called Fail. It's written by a man named J.R. Briggs, and he's talking about people who have chosen to follow God, who've chosen to do something important in their life, significant in their life, to honor God, to do the right thing, and somewhere or another, along the way, they failed. And they didn't just fail a little bit. They would consider and they would say, my failure was an epic fail. And so Briggs has these get-togethers where he has these men and women come to tell their stories, and they worship God together. They talk about their failure. He calls them epic failure um, conferences, epic fail conferences. And and so in chapter nine of this book, he's talking about re-entry, that after you've tried and, and then you end up big epic failure, how do you get back up? How are you resilient? And he, he has these, these uh, sections in that chapter, and I've kind of formed these sermons out of the ideas from those. So what I'm going to actually giving you today is, is a set of wisdom. What I've been giving you right along is a set of wisdom from complete failures. <laughs> They're complete failures. Now, Briggs writes of this, and he says a buddy of his named Stephen Burrell took time to interview thousands of men and women who come to these conferences who have failed. And, and he puts together, what is it that you used? What did you take from your failure? How did you move from your failure to bounce back? How did you, how did you become resilient? I want to read one of the answers to that. He said of the people who came back from their failure that these people made a purposeful effort to, here's the line, pursue God in the valley, anticipating that God would meet them there. When the pain of rejection and loss seemed too great to bear, when they felt they had nothing left, they drew close to God. In the deep and extended darkness of anger, bitterness, denial, or bargaining, they found no road to recovery. Hear that again. In the deep and extended darkness of anger, bitterness, denial, and bargaining, (laughs) there was no road to recovery. The only thing left was to draw close to God. When sleep came only after exhaustion, and when financial concern seized them before refreshment, they drew closer to God. Deep down, they were aware it was the most significant factor in their chance of healthy recovery. What they're saying there is these tools that are in chapter 9 of Briggs' book, that this is the one. This is the most significant thing you can do if you want to bounce back. It is the most significant thing you can do as a human being is to draw close to God and pursue him. And there are a lot of reasons to pursue God. (laughs) 
One of them is, is just for flat out peace of mind. Just for peace of mind. Hey, let me ask you a question. I want you to, to put your hands up if you would. How many of you in the past year have had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? How many of you? Let me see. Okay. Well, not as many as the first group. In the first group, the hands went up like crazy. Yeah, not as many, I guess. They don't come to my house at all anymore. I think I'm blacklisted on their list. They just don't want to see me anymore. I, I can remember, though, the last time they came, they had this opening line, and it's this. Do you think there will ever be peace on earth? That's a great line, right? I don't know where they were going with that because I always got them off script right after that. You know, now we're talking about God instead. But that's a great starter. Do you think there will ever be peace on earth? Because with all the stories in our media, with all the information we have, it is hard to imagine peace on earth. In fact, I was talking to a a young father this past week. And uh, as we were speaking together, I'm talking about current events. I realized he doesn't know about this. So we're talking an hour later. He doesn't know about this. And an hour later, does he even know who the president of the United States is? He didn't know anything about the current events. He's in his late 20s. He's had his first child. He's a school teacher. And he, he, he didn't know anything about what was going on in the news. And finally, I said, do you, do you read the news? And he said, no, I ignore it. I said, why? Because it just gets me riled up. I said, well, that's his job. That's what it's trying to do is get you riled up. He said, yeah, I can't handle it. I need peace. I don't want that. Now, I don't think that's a necessarily wise decision he's making, right? Because you've got to know, I feel like I have to know what's going on in the world so I can vote intelligently, so I can behave intelligently, so I can connect with people intelligently. But I do understand how that robs our peace. There are many things that rob our peace. And that's one reason to pursue God. Because you're not going to get peace out of the nightly news. You're not going to get peace out of the UN. You're not going to get peace out of Washington, D.C. Try as they may. Any organization that tries to give you peace is going to fail. They can't, but God can. And God does. And David seems to know this. David actually derives peace, peace of mind from God. Because he says in verse 2, is your Bible open? Look at verse 2. He says, I've seen you, God, in the sanctuary and behold your power and glory. He's saying this, he says, in the midst of this thing going on in my life, I can remember that you're a God of power and you're a God of glory. And from that, I get a sense of shalom, which is the Jewish word for peace. And I get a sense that it's gonna be okay. Even in an incredibly bad situation, I can have peace of mind if I'm pursuing God. And that can help you bounce back. That can make you resilient. We pursue God for peace of mind. We pursue him for strength, because strength comes from him. If you pursue God, you will find that you are able to handle circumstances you could otherwise not handle. David says in verse 7, because you're my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Because I'm pursuing you and you're helping me, I can actually sing. How, how do you handle, how do you endure heartache? How do you cope with loss? How do you, how do you face pain? How do you find the ability to get back up when life knocks you down for the 10th time, for the 50th time, for the 1,000th time? Where do you find a sense, the strength to be resilient? David found it in God. In verse 8, he says, I cling to your right hand. Your right hand upholds me. You ever been walking through, uh, you know, an area that's maybe kind of dangerous or whatever? You have your toddler there and you have him by the hand. I can remember I'd be taking my son or my daughter along and I could see he was losing his footing. And I just take and just bend my elbow just a little bit, you know, like this. And I'm holding right on to him. He's going along. Because I have a strength that a toddler doesn't have. God has a strength that you do not have. And when you pursue him, he gives you that strength. 
If you don't, you'll be like a boxer who's been pummeled round after round after round until everyone is looking like, why are they not calling a technical knockout? Because he does not have the strength to recover from this. And you'll be like that if you're not pursuing God. But when you pursue him, you find strength. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says, one of the favorite verses in the Bible, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They'll walk and not faint. Pursuing God gives you strength. You pursue him for that. You pursue him as well so that your life has a sense of purpose. Because when we pursue God, we find a higher purpose in our life. Even we find, sometimes you find seemingly for the first time in your life a reason to live. Not just any old reason to live, you find the reason to live. Because we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. David, in verse 3, he says something, that God has given him something to sing about. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. I'll, I'll be fully satisfied, like I'm eating the best food because I'm, I'm praising you. And generally, a person says that kind of things when they feel like everything's good in life and I'm doing the right thing. And I have, I have a, I'm part of the cosmic plan. Because purpose gives you that sense of well-being, and it makes life worth singing about. Every now and then, a business owner will have an employee come to him, a good employee who's been doing a good job. And they'll come and they'll say, you know, I, I just don't feel like this job is working for me. And almost always, that is a question of purpose. I've been working here, I've been working hard, I've been trying to do what I need to do. I just don't find any sense of fulfillment in my life. No meaning here. Now, a good employer will look at that and say, okay, then how do I adjust your position or find a better position for you where you can find meaning and purpose in your life? Or, or maybe how do I re-educate you so you understand the purpose that your life is fulfilling right here? God gives you that sense of purpose when you go to him and say, what am I doing here? What do you have in mind for me? Because he's better than an employer. He's better than the best employer. And he will show you how your life can be meaningful when you pursue him. He will help you develop a sense of direction when you are longing for him and following after him. He will give you a purpose for your existence. Pursuing God. There are many reasons to do it. We should probably talk a little bit about what that pursuit looks like. What does it look like to pursue God? And I would say one of the first characteristics is you pursue him with a desperate heart. With desperation. You actually have to come to terms if you're thinking, okay, Pastor Steve, maybe I will begin to pursue God for the first time or on a higher level. You have to come to terms with the fact that you need God before you can begin to pursue God. The gospel is that way. No one can convince you to, to receive Christ as your Savior. You have to have the Holy Spirit having spoken to your heart, and you're like, oh, yeah, I need to be forgiven. I need to be released from this shame. No one can, no one can force you to do that or twist your arm to do that. It's that way with pursuing God. You need to think through things in your heart and say, wow, something's wrong with my life. I need to pursue God. I need him. I need him. I need him. You know, great hymns of the church and even today's music in the church over and over emphasizes that concept of I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Because we do need God. We pursue him. David had a profound sense of his need for God. Right at the start of the psalm, in the very first verse, he says, Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I'm looking for you, God. 
Think of those words, earnestly, thirst. I long with my whole being. That, that word long could be translated pine. It's a longing. It's a hunger. It's a, it's a dream. It's an intense desire. You, you see this very well in Jesus' disciples. In John chapter 6, something happens. There's a shift happens in Jesus' ministry. And many of those who are following him stop following him. And so Jesus looks at the 12, his inside group, his closest followers. And, and he says, do you want to leave as well? And their response is, is quite remarkable. It shows this, this word that's on the screen, desperation. Simon Peter is the one who says it. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else we can find what we got here. Nowhere else we can go. If you're going to pursue God, you're going to have to adjust your understanding of him to realize there is nowhere else you're going to find what you're looking for. Nowhere. And the pursuit needs to be intentional. It has to be purposeful. It can't be casual. That passage says, I earnestly seek you. And that word earnest is rich with meaning. Rich with meaning. It, it, the word earnest there is a word that would be used if you found out that someone you loved was sick and you needed to get them to a doctor. How hard, mom, how hard, dad, would you work to get a child who's dying to, to a hospital. You'd work stinking hard, right? You would, you would move heaven and earth if it was a life and death situation. That's the language that's used here. It's a language that says, I will move heaven and earth to pursue you, God. And so it isn't casual. In fact, I would say to you, you really can't pursue God in a casual way and feel that you're going to get something meaningful out of that. You probably heard someone who throws this line around from time to time. People have said this to me every now and again. I'm going to say it like a redneck because it's kind of a redneck thing to say. You ready? Well, I can worship God better from the tree stand than I can from a seat in a church. Right? Heard that? Yeah. You know what my response is? I'll bet you can. I'll bet you don't. I'll bet you don't. Because pursuing God can't be a sideline that you're engaged in. You can't say, I'm hunting a deer, and on the side, I think I'll just pursue God a little bit. It has to be the focus of your attention. It has to be intentional. It has to be purposeful. And then it'll be meaningful, and you'll become resilient. And your pursuit of God should be expectant. I will be fully satisfied, he says in verse 5, as with the richest foods. You ever have a good meal? You know, your wife, uh, if she cooks, she puts a great meal down. And at the end of the meal, you kind of push back from the table. You go, Oh, that was one of the best foods I ever had. I don't think I will ever have to eat again. Whew. And if I do, I'll be disappointed because that's the best there ever was. Good stuff right there. And David says that's what he expects when he goes to God, that he will be filled. When he pursues him, that God will make himself available. The worst hunter is a hunter that goes into the woods and doesn't expect anything. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get skunked today, but I'll go out just the same. He might as well stay home. And when you pursue God, you should expect not to be skunked, but to find him because he wants to connect with you. Now listen, deep down, you know. <laughs> you know the importance of all this. You know deep down in the heart of your hearts that you need to pursue God. You know, even if you're not doing it. Even if you've always just said, yeah, that's cool for my husband. That's cool for my wife. I don't know. That's not really for me. Stop. Listen, listen. Deep down in your heart, you know that's not true. You know that inside of you, you need to pursue God. 
And you know that avoiding this pursuit leads you nowhere. If you're not pursuing God, then you will struggle to find real purpose in your life. And you'll always be looking for the next thing to make you happy. It might be the next gadget. It might be the next tool. It might be the next next man or the next woman. It, it could be the next whatever. You're always looking for something, but you will not derive meaning from that. You will not derive satisfaction from that. And you'll really get no resilience out of that. In fact, you'll come to a place in your life, if you're not pursuing God, where you'll say, this life just seems meaningless altogether. We have a couple English teachers attend church here. I just want to give them this piece of counsel. Stop teaching Shakespeare to 16-year-olds, because that's throwing pearls before swine. I got to tell you, man, that guy could say things like nobody else. I think you should have to be 50 years old before you're allowed to read it. It is just so good. It is so good. Shakespeare communicates this idea that when you are not pursuing God, in fact, when you are godless, the outcome of that is a sense that life has no meaning at all. And he does it more than once, but one place he does it is in a play called Macbeth. When a king sees his dead wife and he speaks about life. Listen to what he says. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. He's right, apart from God. Macbeth is dead on right, if you're not pursuing God. The only way, and you know this deep down in your heart, that avoiding this pursuit leads nowhere, And when you tend to your need to pursue God, everything changes. Deep down, you know that embracing this pathway is the only way to be resilient. And you understand what David says in verse 8, I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Because unless you're being held by God, you're really just treading water. You're not moving forward. You're like walking on a treadmill that's not moving across the landscape. I find myself somewhat stubborn though. I find myself wanting to do things myself. Do you have that? I'd rather do it myself. And so I tend to resist at times pursuing God. But when I pursue him and embrace that pathway, then I find I make headway. It makes you resilient. And deep down, you know as well that maintaining this pursuit is vital to your health. Gentleman who wrote the bulk of the New Testament, God breathed the words he intended through this man so that they were written onto the page. His name was Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. I I think if you wrote the bulk of the New Testament, if you'd been the guy that had put more ink on the pages than all the others combined, well, at least, right? I I think you could pretty well say, I know God. (laughs) I mean, I got a handle on this God thing, right? But the Apostle Paul, in writing some of those letters, says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know God. I want to know Christ. Yeah, the power of his resurrection, participation in suffering, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection. That's something I am still hungry for, even though he was saved on a road to Damascus. He planted church after church after church. He's still saying, I'm a seeker. And I want to know God more deeply because he understands that maintaining this pursuit is vital to your resilience, 
to your spiritual health. So Friday night and Saturday of this past week, I'm at Lancaster Bible College, and it's a Christian and Missionary Alliance event, and it's called Seek, one word, Seek. And I'm there looking around, and I got to tell you, here's the reason I'm there. We had something else planned this weekend. We had an outreach planned this weekend, and I called Tim Smay and said, I can't do it. I got to go. I got to seek God. Because in my spirit, I knew I cannot avoid this idea of pursuing God. I need to, I need to, uh, to tend to that in my heart. And I looked around, and there's the president of the alliance and the vice president of overseas ministries, and there's the vice president of church ministries, and there's the district superintendent from Maryland, and there's my district superintendent, and there's pastor, 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 missionary, 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 missionary. And I could look at them, and I could say, what are you guys doing here? We're seeking God. You haven't found him yet? But they wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have said that. Because they understand, as Paul understands, as I want us to understand, that it is vital to maintain an attitude that you are always seeking God. And when you develop this idea that you already got all you're going to get, God might as well just strike you down and take you home. You know, Because honestly, I've seen that. I've been in churches. I've been around church people who feel like they, really, they've learned all there is. And they have an intellectual awareness of the Bible and a history of the Bible. And they know Bible characters that I don't know. But they feel like they know God. Like, all they're going to get. And they feel a little bit like a hollow shell, spiritually speaking. They feel like, like a cup that on the outside is very nice and clean, but on the inside it's just empty. Empty. I think the most common reason for that is because somewhere along the way, they did not maintain a vital pursuit of God. And they won't bounce back. If you want to be resilient, if you want to bounce back, you will always be pursuing him. You remember uh, the quote from Briggs' book. They drew closer to God, these, these people who had failed. They drew closer to God. Deep down, they were aware it was the most significant factor in their chance for healthy recovery. It's probably the most significant factor in yours in terms of resilience. I want to pray that as we prepare for communion, even as we take communion, that we would choose to make pursuit of God the number one priority in our life.